Hi FM, 101.9 megahertz of life. Five minutes past 12 o'clock. Good afternoon. How are you doing? Hope you're having a great one. I am. It's a lovely Thursday afternoon in the city of Joburg, the city where the beautiful jacarandas bloom. And I hope you're enjoying those jacarandas as much as I am. This is the DL Link Show where we connect you through insights, information and illumination here on 101.9 High FM. You know, so much happening. We have got such a fantastic show. Lined up for you today You don't want to go anywhere And if for any reason you do Don't worry We do podcast every single show From the Friday And if it's not on the website on the Friday Then the Monday you will catch all the shows You've just got to go to the High FM website Go to the podcasts Click on Thursday Click on Life Links All the podcasts on there, so there's never an excuse to miss the show and the exciting guests that we have. Of course, we are really getting very excited for the Discovery 947 ride Joburg happening on Sunday, the 17th of November. And today is the last day of October, and then it's November, full steam ahead. Um, It's never too late to um, go onto the website, the um 947 Ride Joburg website and uh, link up with the DL link if that's what you'd like to do um, um, with, with they are building the team, people are practicing they are training, they are growing they are getting fitter and we're getting very excited and of course we will keep you updated. So I mentioned that I'm very excited about today's show because we've sort of touched on this topic before we've always promised that we were going to come back we were going to revisit this topic um, we're looking at organ donation and I think it is such an important discussion to have Um, I was looking at statistics unfortunately I could only get my hands on statistics going back to 2016 but um, there approximately then there were approximately 4,300 South African adults and children awaiting life-saving organ and cornea transplants that's 4,300 but we're going to be looking at all aspects of organ donation um, and I really have such an incredible guest who is going to be visiting South Africa um, tomorrow, actually. He's going to be giving talks. The uh, Malka Ella Fertility Fund has brought him out, and we are so privileged um, to have Rabbi Professor Abraham Steinberg on the show, but also coming to South Africa, specifically Joburg, to give a range of talks on a range of subjects. Today, we're going to be focusing on organ donation. Um, we are also going to be joined by Talia Isaacs, who is a recipient of a bilateral lung transplant. Um, and she's going to be sharing her story And then Jules Gordon, our dear Link Angel Will be joining us And talking about a very um, exciting and uplifting And wonderful um, fundraising event for the DL Link That's taking place And that is what is coming up on the show We are going to take a very, very quick break And after the break, I'm going to be introducing you To Rabbi Professor Avraham Steinberg So do not go anywhere <laughs> Hi FM, your station of choice since 2008. And uh, welcome back to the DL Link Show where we connect you through insights, information and illumination. Today certainly an illuminating show focusing and really focusing on um, organ donation. Can we? Can't we? What does the Jewish religion say? What do we as humanists say? What are the morals um, surrounding that? We're going to be talking to a recipient of a bilateral lung transplant how her life was literally saved. Do you want to be able to save other people's lives? Are you a little 
little bit confused because of what the religion says. Um, it does it make you uncomfortable? Well, we're going to be talking about that because there are thousands of people out there who are waiting for organs in order to survive. So this is an important discussion that we need to be having. So I'm really delighted that all the powers that be got together to ensure that this um, show could could happen. So um, Rabbi Professor Abraham Steinberg will be joining, uh, will be coming to South Africa tomorrow. We are very lucky to be chatting to him. He's in Israel at the moment. He's an Israeli medical ethicist ethicist. He's a pediatric neurologist, a rabbi and an editor of Talmudic literature. He's the director of the medical ethics unit at Shane Zedek Medical Center in Jerusalem and the co-chairman of the Israeli National Council on Bioethics. And I could continue so many awards. He is part of so many organizations. Um, as I said, such a prominent figure. So um, we are delighted and really privileged um, to welcome Rabbi Professor Avraham. Steinberg onto the show. Rabbi, welcome and thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. Are your bags packed? I mean, you're leaving soon. You're coming to South Africa soon. Right. I'm leaving <laughs> early Friday morning, arriving uh, at noon, and I have really a uh, heavy schedule that uh, I want to acknowledge the invitation of the Malkaela a fertility fund for uh, bringing me out to uh, Johannesburg. I'll be giving several talks on different topics, um, perhaps to mention one major one, which will take place on Monday evening on genetics in the 21st century and many other uh, topics throughout the week. Mm. I must say, um, Rabbi, there are fascinating topics. Um, I know that tomorrow, 6 o'clock, how do we define ourselves? There's navigating the untraveled road. Um, there's Torah and science. Ignorance isn't always bliss. The right to life from the beginning of life to the moment of death. Engineering a new life. Genetics in the 21st century. One test, many answers. Finding emuna in our challenges, medical mysteries and miracles, a new perspective in hope and healing, organ donation, um, a living legacy um, and cloning and stem cells. Wow, that is a jam-packed week, Rabbi. What, you know, a range of topics um, and thought-provoking, some of them quite controversial, I would say, in this day and age. Not so much, but certainly in opening people's minds. But what do you hope to achieve, Professor, in, uh, Rabbi, in the in the following week? Well, uh, the main purpose is to explore all these uh, uh, cutting-edge issues of science from a halachic Jewish point of view. I've dealt with it for many years, and I'm lecturing all over, and I hope that the audience will find it of interest, and some of them may perhaps even benefit uh, from the knowledge. I have uh, a number of times mentioned organ donation on the show. Um, we, we've spoken about organ, you know, we've spoken about just donation, like donating blood and platelets. Um, then there's, we've looked at donating um, kidneys while you're still alive. And then, of course, is the subject of organ donation um, when you've passed away. And really, you can save something like seven other lives just by donating organs. But there's always the question that comes up. 
halakhically um, in terms of religion, is it allowed? So I think let's just go straight to that question, Rabbi. Isn't, is it or is it not allowed to donate one's organs? Well, let me, I, I, the answer is not a simple yes or no. It depends on many variables and on many opinions. But let me just put uh, things in the right perspective. If we talk about cadaveric organ donation, meaning to donate the organs after one, after the person passed away, it involves several violations of halachic rulings, which mistakenly many people think that because of it, the whole thing is uh, absolutely forbidden, which is not the real issue. And let me explain. Mm -hmm. In order to take an organ from a dead body, you have to cut the body open. That is regarded as desecrating the body. When you take out several organs or even one organ, this organ will not be buried with the person who owned it while he was alive. And we have an obligation to bury all parts of the person. Also, we are not allowed to derive benefit from the dead body, and obviously that is a huge benefit to whoever gets it. So seemingly, people would say, these violations which are biblically prohibited, how can we do, uh, how can we accept organ donation? The answer is that it is absolutely wrong to uh, go this direction for the following reason. Since we are taking such organs in order to save life, saving life takes precedence over all other mitzvot. Mm -hmm. We are allowed to desecrate Shabbat, we are allowed to eat on Yom Kippur, we are allowed to eat Hametz on Pesach, we are allowed to do any violation of biblical laws in order to save life. And this case is not different than any other form of life-saving, and hence a heart, a liver, a kidney, a lung are life-savings for those who are in need, otherwise they'll die. Therefore, those uh, biblical prohibitions that regularly apply to a dead body are overridden by the obligation to save life. So that is an important part to start with, that it's not a priori forbidden. There is also a mystical approach by some people who think, how will we get up in the world to come, in resurrection, if we are missing a heart, a liver, or a lung? Obviously, that again is not a serious uh, issue because if we believe and we do believe that we all will get up at some point, many of us will be at that point almost nothing in the grave. And yet God will do what he has to do and he will resurrect everyone even from many generations ago. It will be very easy for him just to add the heart or the liver that was taken. I'm saying it a little bit in a jokey way, but mm -hmm. really that is not a serious concern. So what is the concern? I said that all, all uh, mitzvot are overridden for pikuach nefesh, but there are three exceptions. One of them is killing. One is not allowed to murder one person in order to save another or even many other people. So the real question with cadaveric donation is, how do you define the moment of death of the person? Right. If you define it, <coughs> excuse me, if you define it in the classic way, that as long as the 
heart and the breathing mechanism is still there, the person is still alive, then obviously if we take out the beating heart from such a person, we killed him. And that would be uh, forbidden even for the sake of saving. Mm -hmm. However, there's another definition of the moment of death, which medically is called brain death, and halachically it's called irreversible respiratory death. And that means that a person is defined dead, either by halachic or medical criteria, once we can establish a hundred percent, with hundred percent certainty, that he is not breathing and he will never breathe again. If this is the condition, then it's irrelevant what the function of the other parts of the body are at the moment, including the heart. So if we take this definition, what we do in order to establish it, we test uh, the, the brain functions in a very detailed fashion, time and, and doesn't permit to go into details, but there is a clear way to establish that the brain is totally dead. And if the brain is totally dead, there is no way that a person can breathe because respiration is dependent on the center for respiration in the brainstem. And hence, if we can prove that the patient indeed is not breathing and his brain is totally destroyed, he is uh, classified or he is determined as being dead, despite the fact that other organs are still alive. Mm -hmm. And therefore, in this situation, we can take out all the rest of the organs and save lives because saving life takes precedence over the other violations and we didn't kill the person because he is defined dead. So that is really the, the point that is disputable amongst the rabbis, the post-team of our generation. Many have accepted the concept of respiratory brain death, including Rabbi Moshe Feinstein, who was the leading uh, authority in the United States and actually in the world. The chief rabbinate of Israel has established it. Rabbi Ovadia Yosef and many other uh, rabbis. On the other hand, there are uh, notable and very important authoritative rabbis who did not accept it. Mm -hmm. So if someone wants to be a donor or if the family considers to uh, make her next of kin who, who is in the, such a situation as a donor, they have to decide if they follow the ruling of those who say that the person is dead by brain criteria or the ruling when the person is dead by heart criteria. Rabbi, I I'm, 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 gonna, I'm so sorry to interrupt you. We're going to take a quick pause, a quick break, and uh, we're going to come back to you. Please, please stay there. IFM 101.9 megahertz of life. Welcome back to the Deal Link Show, where we connect you through insights, information, and illumination. We're talking about organ donation. I have Rabbi Professor Avraham Steinberg on the line from Israel. He will be flying to uh, South Africa tomorrow. He's got, giving a range of very, very interesting discussions next week. The Malka Ella Fertility Fund has brought him out. As I said, I, I, I will be giving you details if you'd like to attend any of these 
fantastic, fantastic talks that will be taking place next week. And uh, Rabbi Professor Avram Steinberg has very generously giving us, given us some time today just to give us, uh, uh, you know, what is a very complex subject um, with so many different ideas around organ donation. And, and it's wonderful to get this stance um, um, from him. So, Rabbi, just before the break, you were outlining what is brain death, the irreversible respiratory death, um, and that it has been agreed that when the brain is dead, um, that when there is no breathing, then organs can be used because to save a life overrides um, the uh, biblical laws, as you outlined earlier. Um, you were saying, however, that there has been a, I wouldn't say a backlash, but there are rabbis, there are people out there who have a different opinion about this. Perhaps you, we, we can we can look at that. Right. So, so the differences of opinion between current uh, rabbis is on this very question, what is the exact moment of death by Allah criteria? Right. So those who accept the respiratory brain death criteria, for them this person is dead by definition, by halachic definition, and hence he can become an organ donor to save lives. Other rabbis rule that as long as the heart is functioning, even though the person is not breathing and the brain is dead, he is still defined as being alive, and hence he can't donate those types of organs that are dependent on the heart function. Let me just uh, uh, add uh, two little uh, issues to, to this uh, discussion. Mm-hmm. A, in Israel, the legislation of the Knesset, of the parliament, accepted the chief rabbinate's position that uh, brain death, respiratory brain death is defined legally from the Knesset point of view, alachically from the chief rabbinate's point of view, as the moment of death. Mm-hmm. However, there is a paragraph that says that if a family or a person is of a conscientious opinion that as long as his heart is functioning, he is still alive, then he should not be removed from the respirator. Obviously, he will not be able to be an organ donor. So the the law in Israel took into account the two different positions, although it took the chief rabbinates and Rabbi Moshe Feinstein's position as the leading uh, legislation. One point that I think is important to uh, realize, and that is actually a medical point, but has halachic ramifications. And that is that even those who accept respiratory brain death, they want to be a hundred percent sure that indeed it's irreversible. And people can make mistakes, including physicians. We physicians don't like that people say that we make mistakes, but we do make mistakes. And it's, it's a humane and we know that it happens. And therefore in Israel, there's a requirement of determining medically the situation of brain death in, with much more criteria and, uh, and, and uh, needs to verify it than in many other countries in the world. Mm, okay. I was in touch with the president of Johannesburg on this issue, and I think we can uh, formulate or help formulate a protocol that for those who accept respiratory brain death, for them the determination, the medical determination will be done with the strict criteria that they are done in Israel 
and not with the regular criteria that are done in South Africa and many other countries. So if we do that and we accept the principle, then certainly we are doing a tremendous mitzvah of saving so many lives. Hmm. Rabbi, that's really encouraging. So you actually spoke to um, someone from the Organ Donation Foundation here, and 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 were they were they open to looking at that uh, changing the protocol um, and being specific uh, with that criteria? No, no, I, I spoke with the best dean of Johannesburg, oh, and, and we discussed the, these options. Okay. And I think that it would make sense that the authorities will do it because it's only making it better and, and safer, with, uh, avoiding mis- possible mistakes. By the way, in Australia, I did the same thing with the best dean in Sydney, and the, uh, the Australian uh, organ transplant authorities accepted it and even already have uh, done it for Jews who wanted it to be done that way. So I think it could be done in, in other countries as well. Well, that's wonderful. Wonderful to hear. So uh, uh, for people who are listening um, and who have been considering organ donation but who haven't um, known about whether halakhically it was right or, or, or wrong to donate organs, they can actually contact the Beth Din and they will be guided, I'm sure, um, along with, right. with the process, which is great. Thank you so much for clarifying that, Rabbi. Um, Rabbi, you, you mentioned in the beginning when we looked at this, the certain rules about uh, desecrating the body um, and being buried without the organ that you were born with. Now, I, I know that there, there's a lot of people who are, I'm talking about within the Jewish communities around the world, who are looking at donating kidneys. Um, I know specifically that in Israel, there's a very interesting community, Yitzah in the Sumeria area, the Sumeria Mountains, um, and they have got the largest community of kidney donors in Israel. Um, what do you, what well, do you well, say about that? Well, I, I assume you're talking about live organ yes, donors. Yes, absolu- absolutely, live, or, live right. kidney donors. Right. So, since we are born with two kidneys, and in fact, we can live very well, probably with very minimal side effects with only one kidney. So we can easily donate one kidney for someone who has no kidneys and he will not be able to survive long and he will need dialysis, which is a very uh, terrible quality of life. So that is certainly permissible by halachic criteria because the risk taking by the donor is very, very small, although there is some risk, and we are allowed to take a low-level risk in order to help someone else. Sometimes we do it even for ourselves. I always give the example in Israel, there's a very high rate of car accidents and deaths on, on the streets. To go out on the street or to drive in Israel is taking greater risk <laughs> Than donating one kidney. Oh, wait till you come to South Africa. Wait till you come to South Africa, Reva. <laughs> okay, so it's certainly true. So, so therefore, since the risk is so low, and we do take such risks, that is perfectly permissible. There, there are several big organizations that promote it. They do it uh, totally uh, utilitar- uh, 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 voluntarily without payment. And they feel very good by saving others' lives. And we see very, very little complications on the donors. 
so that this is another way to save uh, people, which halachically is certainly uh, permissible. Um, and, and so, so the desecrating the body, as you said, saving the life overrides no, no, here those there's laws. No, desec- desecrating body is only of dead body. Okay. There is okay. no prohibition to desecrate. I mean, we don't encourage it, but it's not the same uh, prohibition. So okay. there's prohibition of desecrating. There's only the concern of taking a risk, which we are not allowed to take too great risks because we have to keep our body healthy. But since the risk is so low, then uh, there is no objection. Rabbi, you have been really um, so clear in your explanation of how that works, and I'm sure that for many who have been listening, who have been considering it, um, you've certainly made, um, I think, their decision a lot easier for them. So thank you very much for that. And before I do say goodbye to you, because you are going to be discussing a range of topics next week, I'd, I'd like to just talk about something very, very briefly, and that's the, the right to death. Um, you know, in South Africa, it's a controversial, it is against the law, um, We've discussed it as well on the show. What What is your stance, and halachically, uh, what, what is the, the stance with the right to die? Well, that can't be said in, in two words, and it depends what you include in the right to die. Is it just let go? Is it stopping uh, machineries that keep you alive? Is it killing you? Is it assisting you in suicide? There are various levels. Some are totally and absolutely forbidden, some are permissible, and it depends on what exactly we are talking about. So it's a huge topic, topic. Mm. and incidentally, I just came back from the Vatican on Monday, we signed a historic position paper signed by the three uh, monotheistic religions, the, the top levels of them, the Pope, the chief rabbis of Israel, and some of the very senior Muslim uh, leaders uh, saying that uh, euthanasia and physician-assisted suicide is absolutely forbidden and countries that do so are doing something morally wrong and there are alternatives which have to be taken into account. People don't have to suffer as much as they do if we give them good palliative care, but there is another reason to take a life. Hmm. As you say, that's a show for another day, and I'd love to explore that with you another time. But I know that you will be discussing that and many other topics um, next week, Rabbi. I, I thank you so much um, for taking time out today to to address our audience. We look forward to hosting you in Johannesburg next week. And, um, yes, and we hope that you have a fantastic stay when you're here. Thank you very much for having me. Um, thank you so much, uh, Rabbi Professor Avraham Steinberg, just as Associate Clinical Professor of Medical Ethics at the Hebrew University Hadassah Medical School in Jerusalem. He's an author, a leading authority on the Jewish perspective of organ donation and many other topics. As I said, he is out. The Malka Ella Fertility Fund uh, bringing him out. He is going to be giving a range of talks next week, um, all sorts of discussions, very, very interesting. 
interesting. Um, and if you are interested, you can WhatsApp or call the foundation on 0720354235. That's 0720354235. I hope that you found that as interesting as I did and, um, very interesting to know that he spoke to, um, the Beth Din here in South Africa. And, um, so there is a way forward in terms of organ donation. And as I said, you know, at the outset of the show, I'm very passionate about it. And I happen to have someone in the studio who we're going to be talking to in a minute. She would not be here today if someone did not donate their organs. And I think we have to say it as bluntly and as clearly as that. Someone had to pass away. They made the decision to donate their organs. And she is here today in the studio because of that. So we can talk about it with the rabbi. You know, we can look at the laws and we can break it down. And at the end of the day, when it's you or when it's your family member and you're looking for that organ and you need that organ, where's it coming from? That's why we're having the discussion today, because with all the laws, we're human beings. And how can we be the best possible human beings that we can be? So that's why we're asking the question. Let's take a break. After the break, Talia Isaacs will be joining us and sharing her incredible story so you don't want to go anywhere. IFM 101.9 megahertz of life. If you have just tuned in, good afternoon. This is the DL Link Show where we connect you through insights, information and illumination. I'm Nikki Seberini with you. Um, and I'm very excited to introduce our next guest. Just before the break, I said, you know, we've got a, a person in the studio who is the recipient of, of, uh, of uh, bilateral lungs. And she sits here today in the end of 2017. Her lungs were in a shocking state. Um, and she was lucky enough to get lungs and she is looking amazing vital, energetic. It's fantastic. What a miracle and how wonderful to have Talia Isaacs in the studio. Talia, hello. Welcome. Hello. Hi, Ron. Wow. You have a story to share, my darling. What a story. Let's go back to 2015 when life looked beautiful. You were <laughs> married. You had your whole life ahead of you. Woohoo! <laughs> yeah. Life changes in a day. That's what I definitely learned. Yeah. Um, yeah. And the beginning of... Um, 2015 actually I was I'd, I was one year married life was great and suddenly I started falling ill I got blisters in my mouth I got weird um inability to move certain muscles and joints I landed up in ICU because I also couldn't breathe and along this whole journey was a what lot mean of you couldn't breathe like you it was difficult I to just felt I felt as if I was drowning and I couldn't get that last breath in. So as if you're underwater for an extended period of time and you come up and you take that deep breath and you like exhale and you feel good, you don't get that. Mm -hmm. You sort of build up all this air in your lungs and you just cannot breathe. Sure. Okay. You can't breathe out. You can't exhale. <sighs> I have to take a deep breath just thinking about yes, that. Yes, it's quite, it's like mm, a panic attack. Mm, mm. Um, and we went to many doctors and no one knew what was going on with me. And by some miracle, I did actually land up in ICU the night before my lungs or my diaphragm actually collapsed. And thank God I was in hospital because I landed up ventilated and I was in the right place for that. Um, what actually had happened is I landed up with an autoimmune condition, my senior gravis, and another one 
um, pemphigus and this autoimmune condition we thought was under control. I had a month in hospital. That wasn't the greatest experience, but I came out there and everything was looking rosy. <laughs> and what were you thinking at that time? How were you feeling about your body, your health, your future? Everything goes very fuzzy. You don't know where your future is going to go. You mm-hmm. don't know what's wrong with you. Um, a lot of talking to the doctors got me through that, knowing that they knew I would be okay. I was reassured that you can live a 100% normal life with these conditions. Okay. Um, and it, they were true. It was right. I didn't suffer. I, after that month, I went back to normal life. But um, a few months later in a routine scan, I landed up finding a tumor in my abdomen. And again, it wasn't just straightforward a tumor. It was a tumor in a very difficult to reach place. It needed professors and, um, yeah, many doctors had to get together and decide how to operate on this. Mm-hmm. Um, I had doctors from Mill Park and from Donny Gordon and they all came together. And again, they, it was a miracle because I managed to get them to work together without any issues at any hospital. That and is they incredible. Me. Wow. It wasn't a debate. It, mm-hmm. they, their plan was to save my life, and that's what they did. Mm-hmm. They saved my life. And unfortunately, after about three months, again, this was the third time that I thought life was back to normal, and then the shortness of breath became real. And not only could I not breathe, I couldn't walk uh, I couldn't walk about 10 meters without stopping to take a breath. It felt like I was having asthma attacks. I don't have asthma and I don't know what it's like, but I was hyperventilating right. basically. Uh-huh. Um, and the condition got worse and we didn't know what it was. I started seeing pulmonologists. I started seeing, I went back to my autoimmune doctor and everything was fine on that front, but we couldn't work out why I wasn't breathing. I was very, very lucky enough to come across, have a few doctors that were very closely linked to Professor Murr, also in our community, an amazing doctor Mm. at Joburg Jen. And I was lucky enough for him to to, um, test me, test my lungs, check my x-rays, check all my results over, now it was over a year period that I was going through this. So at this point, I hadn't been breathing for a good six months properly. Breathing properly. But, mm. and, and, and I think rewind a little bit because you had a lot of psychiatrists on board. You were being medicated for anxiety because they said you, you were anxious. And mm. so was it, did they think it was the anxiety that was bringing about the lack of breathing or it was the breathing bringing about the lack of breathing bringing about the anxiety? So when the doctors couldn't figure out what was going on, although my lung function, which a normal lung function is a hundred percent. Mine was started the first time I had a lung function during this whole procedure, which was probably about four months into this not breathing. It was sitting on thirty six percent. That's probably when you start working out that you can't breathe. So some of the doctors were on board that this is a lung issue, mm-hmm. but the other doctors were convinced that I had a psychiatric problem, and they probably wanted to admit me for a couple of weeks into Tara. So obviously I refused that because I knew I couldn't breathe. But I also went to several psychiatrists because I thought if this is anxiety and it can be solved by medication, I'm all for it. Uh And yeah, obviously it didn't work. And it must have been also, I mean, to be told that and then you're on this medication, you've got these psychiatrists who are telling you, suggesting maybe you go to Tara. You're newly married. This has got to have 
a huge toll on on your emotional life, your personal life. And we, we can we can you know just look at the health issue of your lungs, and but that must have been tough, Tanya. It's a very tough package. You've got dealing with a lot of guilt with the family. Yeah. You're dealing with your own like I actually don't even know what's wrong with me. So I didn't know whether I was going to live or die. Not that I ever for one second thought I was going to die, but I didn't know where life was going to take me. Mm-hmm. I didn't know if I was going to be housebound for my, the rest of my life mm-hmm. because for a good four to six months, I was basically housebound. Um, yes, it was a huge change in planning. Our conversations went from planning our next holiday to planning my next doctor visit. Um, the finances, it's a very expensive burden. Thank God for medical aid, but it's a, again, you, Every day you're planning, you have to pay all these bills. I started mm. getting all these bills. I don't even know how to deal with it, not financially, but just emotionally. You don't even know how to tackle this stuff. Yeah. And then you're also dealing with the family who don't know how to support you. Mm. And obviously my husband, who was in a panic, he didn't know if, he, if his wife was going to live or die. Mm. So, so they love you. They want to be there for you. But you're the one going through it. You're the one who's finding it difficult to breathe. And you've got them all anxious around you. And that just... I'm sure makes it so much more difficult. Terrible burden. Yeah, so yeah. much more. So you finally go see this professor with the shining light, Professor Murr. Professor Murr, who uh-huh. I absolutely adore. <laughs> <laughs> and what did he say when he decided to look at all of your tests and the results and the whatevers? So it was actually two of my neurologists that had relationships with them, and mm-hmm. um, one of them being Jody Pearl in our community as well. And she phoned him and she said, this is definitely not autoimmune. And he basically couldn't figure out. I think, I don't know if he couldn't figure out or he took a little while. I think it was about two weeks later to figure out what was going on. And he was actually on a trip. I think he was going on holiday or something. So it was around the New Year season and he's always traveling. Mm -hmm. And it happened to be on a day that I was admitted into hospital. My body finally reached breaking point. Carbon dioxide had filled up so much in my brain that I was getting terrible headaches. Mm. And I landed up in hospital and under Jody Pearl's care at the time. It just so happened to be like that. And Professor Murr turned back from his trip to come back to the hospital to tell my family that the only way I'm going to survive is through a transplant. Sure. Without that, I will die. Um, immediately, I was taken off to the Park Hospital. That is the lung transplant unit in South Africa. Mm-hmm. Well, actually not. Now they've got one in Cape Town, quite a successful one, which is quite amazing. It's new and great. Um, but... Then that's where I was prepped for transplant or tested for transplant. I had a full team of doctors who had been looking after me. And it was very unbelievable what was going on because my primary doctor, my primary physician, was convinced that this I couldn't have deteriorated so badly since my previous op, which was probably six to eight months before that, where my lung function was on 110%. At this point, my lung function was sitting at 14%. Sure. So between the 36, first seeing the doctor, it went down to 14. Mm. Mm. And to be told you need, the only way you're going to survive is to have the lung transplant and you're in a country where it's not easy, right? Do they give you statistics? So you do all your homework yeah. and you're told not to, but the stats are not good. I mean, I don't know them offhand now, but... There's basically, there's just not enough donors in our country. Mm-hmm. Uh, most people die before they get their transplant. Um, 
as it is, the transplant is a tough up to get through. When you get, just getting through that is hard, but a lot of people don't even get there and they don't get the right lungs. And that goes for all organs. So I can isolate the lungs and say, maybe you'll get it within six months to a year. But I think kidneys and liver, you can wait years. I mean, if you hear of someone getting a kidney or a liver within the year, it's very unlikely. It's it's Virtually crazy, impossible. it's crazy, it's crazy, it's crazy, especially because we're having this discussion that you can donate a kidney, you can live a perfect life of one kidney, and there are people dying because they need kidneys. This is crazy. It's crazy. It's crazy. I, I don't know what else to say. It's just I can't believe people are dying. Uh, yeah, because they need kidneys, and we're all sitting here with two kidneys. I'm getting a little bit controversial. I think we need to push it as much as we can. Let's take a break. After the break, I want to hear about your transplant. Let's let's get to that. Hi FM, your station of choice since 2008. Welcome back. Talia Isaac's in the studio. She is talking about her organ transplant, her lung transplant, the bilateral one. So it tells you we're in hospital for five months. Tell us about the day you got your lungs. The night before I got my lungs, I was told that I need to put a feeding tube in my stomach because I was weighing 30 something kilograms to give you some context as to how weak and how, how you deteriorated. How it had deteriorated. Yeah. I got a phone call at about midnight. Um, I was sitting on a lazy boy because I couldn't even lie in bed anymore. And I was told your lungs are on the way. And that's, I just remember sitting down and she said to me, have you, do you want me to phone your family? I said, I think you better because I don't know what to do with myself. Mm. Um, my whole family was there. What was with, going through your mind? I can't remember. Nothing. Okay. It was like a, it, it was like a dream. Yeah. A dream come true. And, Dreams don't come true. So mm. it was a dream come true. Mm. Um, and I just sat there. I was very happy, very elated, but like I was in a bit of shock. And all of a sudden my whole family was there. And that is basically all I remember. From there, I rem- I've been told stories that I was perfect. I was talking to everyone. I was on top form. I apparently <laughs> found my whole family around the world. Yeah. World, not just immediate family uh-huh. to tell them I was getting my lungs. Um, I also got told by the doctor that wheeled me through that I told him that he can't take me anywhere. I need to go with my whole kit, as in all the machines I was on, mm-hmm. else I'm definitely going to have a panic attack on the way. And apparently he set up my entire station because it was my bedroom for five months. Uh-huh. He set me up and he took me through to theater. Wow. Didn't want me to panic. Um wow. When I got out of theater, the doctors basically said that my lungs were the size of two ice cream scoops. Dr. B and Dr. Sussman, mm-hmm. also amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, and that I didn't have very long to live. The estimate they had given us was pretty inaccurate. I was way worse off. And I, yeah, what all I remember is I woke up when I woke up. Apparently, I was ex- Excubated. The ventilator was taken out the next day. I was put on normal oxygen for about three days. And when I woke up, officially, when I recall waking up, I remember feeling my face and there was nothing there and I could breathe. No pipes, nothing. Nothing. I felt, Mm. I felt, it didn't even feel new. It felt normal. I felt like I was a normal human being all of a sudden, Mm. straight away. You had been gifted 
had you've a been gift gifted of life. a life. And someone had donated the organs. So I'm going to end with this, Tanya, because you're so brave and it's such a wonderful story. For those who are listening, who are on the fence, who are thinking about it, what do you, as a person, as a recipient of a do- of an organ, what do you want to say? I think that you you when you think of organ donation, you really are saving a life. I'm living a perfectly healthy, normal, productive life. I'm part of normal society. I'm not special. I'm not debilitated. I'm not disabled. You can actually contribute to this world that we live in. And I think you should definitely consider organ donation because without it, people do die. And you can save seven lives, if not more, just from your one body. Thank you, my darling. Talia Isaac, thank you so much for coming onto the show. You are amazing and you look absolutely fantastic. Thank you Fan- so much. Fantastic. I'm going to be giving the Organ Donation Foundation's number to you just now. You can give them a call. But we're moving on. Wow, I've got chills. Chills, chills, chills. Amazing. It's in science and medicine and spirituality and humanity and love and connection and the essence of who we are. Amazing. It drives us. And that's why I'm always privileged to represent the DL Link show on 101.9 FM because that is that, that's what they're all about. This connection and love and being So Jules Gordon, our dear link angel, is helping them to continue to do what they do. Jules, welcome. Lovely to have you on the show. Thank you, Nikki. And you're putting together a fundraising event. Yes, it's going to be on the 22nd, uh, 23rd and 24th of November. Tell us more. It's going to be at the Victory Theatre. And um, it's actually a tribute to um, someone that I've admired ever since I was uh, probably a Sub teenager, and his name happens to be Cliff Richard. Oh, and I love Cliff Richard. Well, Richard. And, and you're a lot younger than me. <laughs> but I love him. <laughs> yeah. Um, what happened is that um, the way that the show came about is um, I ended up in hospital at, at the beginning of this year, and um, I had I had uh, a, a blood virus where my blood count dropped right down to dangerous levels. Wow. And they thought it might have been blood cancer, leukemia. And um, after various tests and lying in, in hospital for over a week, uh, had bone marrow, had everything. Um, and I was lying uh, on one of the nights with all these tubes and pipes. And I started thinking and I thought to myself, what about the poor people, especially children, who actually do have cancer because it was then ruled out? And um, I thought, how can I help them? Mm-hmm. And um, I'd heard of DL Link. Yeah. I'd never met Michelle, who's like an angel. An angel. And um, I'd heard about them. And, and as I said, and um, I've, I've been involved in music for many, many years, ever since I can remember. And um, my current band, the High Street Band, we'd been thinking that they were actually a cover a Cliff Richard and Shadows cover band. Oh, great. And so then they wrote me in to do vocals for them. Uh-huh. And um, I actually met Cliff Richard in 1961. On his he, very was in, he was in South Africa. Correct. Uh-huh. He came out. He's been in South Africa about 20 times. Okay. Um, I met him in 1961 on his first tour. Um, I actually sang for him. And I sang, Gee. well, I was 13 years old. And one of the one of the kids that was sit in the crowd said, he, that's me, can sing your song better than you can. So he said, oh, let's hear it. You know, and he was 19 years old. So he wasn't he that was much. Curious. Yeah, he's curious. Uh, yeah. So he says, let me hear. 
So I said, are you serious? So he said, yeah. Anyway, uh, two of the shadows were with him. Um, one of the guys t- uh, had a guitar there. Uh, two of the strings were broken. So there were four strings. And Hank B. Marvin, who's one of the best guitarists in the world, uh, a member of the shadows, was with him. And Hank accompanied me. And I sang no. Cliff's song. And it was called A Voice in the Wilderness. So that is amazing. And wow. thank you. It, it was, you know, 13 years old singing for your pop idol. It was, at it was 10, th- 20, 58, whenever. That's incredible. To Absolutely. But I was, I, I was a little youngster of 13. Oh, and then wonderful. it so happens that I met Cliff again. I got backstage through a bit of chutzpah and everything else. Um, when he came on his tour in 2010 to Carnival City. And I insisted on getting backstage. I managed to, I don't know how I got there. It was, it's a bit of a long story, but long story short, I got him to sign the black and white picture from 1960. That's wonderful. Oh. Wow, wow, wow. Wow. And what an, what an incredible thing. Yeah. So, so I decided, I decided that, um, that the band had always been talking about, uh, doing a, doing a tribute to Cliff Richard in the shadows. So while I'm lying in hospital, I get up, I take my pipes and everything else with me and I go to the nurse's station and they looked at me and they said, oh, are you alright? I said, I'm fine. I said, I need some paper and a pen. And they thought, what does this guy want to write out his last will and testament or something? And, um, it so happens that I said, no, I've got something in my head I have to write down. And then I started just writing this whole, Thing about the show that I wanted to put to on, to put together, to put together, which you're putting together, which we are on the 23rd together. and the 24th 23rd of November, 24th of and November, and the proceeds going to the deal, going to deal link. How can people get tickets? Um, they can get tickets. They can um, either f- uh, contact me yes. on 082-552-3148. They can also Google www dot high street band. SA.co.za. Fantastic. Jules, thank you so much. Um, Jules Gordon, amazing. You've met the man. You've now written a tribute to Cliff Richards. It's happening at the Victory Theatre the 23rd and the 24th of November. November. The proceeds are going to the DL link. You can contact Jules directly. 082-552-3148. Jules, thanks for coming thank on to so the show. Thank you so much, Nikki. And thank, thank you. you so much thank for listening. You. I hope you've enjoyed it. For me, Nikki Sebugini, until next week, take care. Bye-bye.